Welcome back to the Indiana Bible College Chapel Podcast, where today we're going to hear about the problem with Bible college. But before we do that, I want to say thanks again for everyone who is listening, liking, and subscribing to the Indiana Bible College Chapel Podcast. A couple of weeks ago, we asked you what your thoughts were on uh, some new content. We've been working towards some new content, so make sure that you stay tuned and uh, are going to be listening in for some different styles, some different formats of the Indiana Bible College podcast. But today we've got a chapel podcast entitled The Problem with Bible College from campus pastor Jason Gallion. of Reality Week is that we truly reap the benefit. <laughs> I'm sure that lives were changed. I have no doubt about that, Brother Sleeva. Outside of these four walls, I know that at the concert on Thursday, you could just walk through and you could see lives being touched by the presence of God. Block party several in that altar they were hungry tent revival again a young man baptized in Jesus name in Bible study he's wanting the Holy Ghost but how many how many this week God did a miracle for you are a prayer that you were praying he answered it lift your hand up high look at that you see, there's a law of the harvest that whatever we begin to sow, we're going to reap in places that we didn't sow. That's the beauty of it. You see, the more you do for God, you can't outgive and you can't outdo. So you do for God, and guess what? He, he's going to turn it back, and He is going to take care of you. Of you, your need. Several answered prayers, several miracles. I, I wish we could just call you up right now and just talk about it, how God touched family members, and people in car wrecks and turned lives around, and, and they're coming to IBC. I mean, it's just happening. A young lady was in a car wreck, they called. It, was a, it wasn't good, the first phone call. But through it all, through prayer, she said, well, I'll be at IBC in the spring wake-up call. Dad's sick in body, kidneys shutting down, toxins. We've, we've, had, we've had preachers die of kidneys shutting down and toxins throughout the body. Kidney stones so large that they were going to have to operate. There was no question. And we prayed and that kidney stone disappeared. We could, we could continue to go on. My goodness, you begin to do for the kingdom. God's got it. Amen. 
I've never seen a bill that God is not bigger than. I've never seen sickness that God can't heal. I've never seen depression that God can't lift up out of. I've never seen somebody so lost that he can't save. I've not seen somebody so bound that that chain can't be broken. That's the kind of God that when we begin to do what we are required to do, then that allows God to do what he wants to do. Amen. Amen. I, I don't I don't feel a whole lot like preaching, but I'm gonna preach anyways. Amen. If you have your Bibles and would like to turn to your seats, you can. Nehemiah, the first chapter. I want us to read beginning in verse three, and we're gonna read down a couple verses, and then we may skip to the second chapter and read verses seven, eight, and nine. And then we may skip to the fourth chapter and read verse 13. If you have Nehemiah 1 and 3, say amen. Those of you that don't even have a Bible that said amen, ask for forgiveness. Nehemiah 1 and 3. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captive there in the providence are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates therefore are burned with fire. It came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Chapter 2, verse 7. And moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given to me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace which appertain to the house, for the wall of the city, for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Chapter 4, verse 13. Therefore I set in the lower places behind the wall, and on the higher places I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. I want to preach a thought, the problem with Bible school, the problem with Bible school. We've got a problem. Let's close our eyes and ask God to help us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be upon us. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray, God, that your anointing would be upon this vessel. And I pray that you'd touch our hearts to receive and our ears to hear your word. I give you glory. I give you honor. And everyone said in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I was not introduced to this particular author, this poet of sorts until I was an adult, but something within his writing resonated within my heart and soul, something of a far-off land. They had a school named after him, drove by that school many days on my way back and forth to the church, and finally I dawned on me that this was actually the Robert, Robert Service, Service High School in Anchorage, Alaska. He's a writer of verse, and he is from Great Britain that moved to the Yukon Territories when the gold rush was taking place. He wrote 
powerful voices of the past, we could say, of things such as the cremation of Sam McGee, the shooting of Sam McGrew, the Pines, the Yukon, and then this, the men that don't fit in. Let me read it to you. There's a race of men that don't fit in, a race that can't stay still. So they break the hearts of kilt and kin, and they roam the world at will. They range the field, they row the flood, they climb the mountain's crest. Theirs is a curse of the gypsy's blood, and they don't know how to rest. They just went straight, they might go far. They're strong and brave and true. But they're always tired of things that are, and they want the strange and new. They say, can I find my proper groove? What a deep mark I would make. So they chop, they change, and each fresh move is only a fresh mistake. And each forgets as he strips and runs with a brilliant, fitful pace. It's the steady, quiet, plotting ones who win in the lifelong race. As each forgets that his youth has fled, forgets that his prime is past, till he stands one day with the hope that's dead in the glare of the truth at last. He has failed, he has failed, he has missed his chance. He's just done things by half. Life's been a jolly good joke on him, and now it's time to laugh. He's one of the legions of the lost. He was never meant to win. He's the rolling stone that's bred in the bone. He's a man who won't fit in. Kind of a daunting little thought, isn't it? The man that doesn't fit in. If we were to take our text in Nehemiah, we see maybe someone of similarity. He's a gentleman that doesn't fit in. It's not by his choice, though. He's, he's not in this place because he chose to be there. He has been given circumstances. His life has kind of been forced into this idea of who he is now. Possibly, according to Matthew Henry, he was a priest or a holy man. But now he is just rendered into the service of a mad king, a pagan king. And he is forced to be the cupbearer. He doesn't want to be a cupbearer, but he is a slave that has been pulled away in a time of war. The city that he dwelt was now rendered helpless. They were considered captives. Their gates were burned, their city walls destroyed and torn down. And Nehemiah is a victim of circumstance. He doesn't like it probably, who would? You get up every morning and you're forced to do not what you want, not your idea, not what you enjoy. You're not even getting paid for it, even if you don't. But he's forced to serve a king that he really doesn't know. Can you imagine a man that's ripped away from his family, his friends, probably watched most of them die by sword, by the very people that now he lives with and rubs shoulders with day in and day out. Maybe not by them personally, but by their command and by their idea and what they stand for. You see, he's a man that does not fit in. He doesn't feel comfortable in his new surroundings. He cannot. How could he? Doesn't he know that his family, most of them probably dead or dying, at least from starvation, if not by the quick, swift work of a sword, left back in a place that is now connected with words of reproach and desolation? But Nehemiah is a man that understands that every morning that I get up, there's a task 
at hand that I must do. It's not my choice to do this. It's the lot in life that I've been given. And though he may go through the motions, Nehemiah is not completely content on his life and where he should be, but things are about to change. Because as Nehemiah is serving in the king's kingdom, a relative comes to visit. A relative that comes from his home. A relative that doesn't bear good news. A relative that has nothing but sorrow and despair. They talk, and no doubt in the course of conversation, as it would in our conversation, they talk of the good old days, of places that they used to go and things that they used to do. They discuss those moments where they laughed together and they cried together. Family meetings and gatherings and little places down by the river and up on the hillside and sunsets and daybreaks. How so-and-so doing? Oh, I don't know. I haven't heard or seen from them in some time. Possibly carried off. Well, how's your parents? Well, well I haven't heard from them either. Not since those bandits came in and captured a small group of people that were on their way to the market. They may have been taken, I'm not for certain. Nehemiah begins to hear of the dismay by a cousin, and he weeps openly. Matthew Henry said, and I keep quoting Matthew Henry because that's the only commentary I could find in my library. I don't know where the rest of them are at at this moment. Spread out partly under my bed, partly in my office, partly in 37 boxes in my garage. I pray that I get a library one day. I'd like to get those out and display them. Maybe not necessarily read them, but just display them. It makes you feel better. He said that Nehemiah was not in a place to openly, visibly show how the words affected him. Now think about that. Here's a man that's been delivered the most devastating news of his life, possibly. And he is forbidden to weep and to mourn. Because he's in the presence of a king. Death would ensue. And so he deals with it. He possibly goes back to his room. But when Nehemiah begins to hear the state of the world... It affects him to the point that he does two things after the weeping. The Bible says that he begins to fast and to pray. This is not an open demonstration. He doesn't gather the rest of Indiana Bible College together. He doesn't pull his closest friends and say, we're going to fast and believe. But Nehemiah himself takes on the obligation that there's probably no one else in the position to do anything about it but me. And what I can do is simply pray and fast. Because God has His hand upon this city, and He's not going to let this take place for long. Nehemiah had something that began to burn inside of him. Because you cannot begin to fast and pray, and it not affect you physically and spiritually. The Bible says that a burden began to get a hold of Nehemiah and he had to do more than just fast and pray. Let me say this, the problem with Bible college is we feel stuck sometimes in doing what God has called us to do. Let me explain this. 
I watch this happen. It doesn't happen your freshman year, but sometimes it does your sophomore year, and guarantee you it'll happen your junior year. And by your senior year, you're antsy, and you're wringing your fingers, and you're sweating, and some just completely give up. You want to know why we have so many turnovers after the freshman year? Is because we feel that we have got to go and do immediately. You see, we, we get preached to every Tuesday and Thursday from this place right here. And then we sit in church service and we get bombarded by an incredible preacher on Wednesdays and Sundays. And something begins to stir inside of us. And there's passion and there's fire and we feel that we can take on the world. And so we, we got to get out there and do something. We, we've got to get a hold of it. We, we got to get in the pulpit. We, we've got we've to make a difference. And, and we get so beside ourselves that we're ready to leave IBC because, well, you know what? I took a Brother Kilman's class. And, man, I can, I can explain the oneness of God. I can do it. I, been debating, and, and I think that I can make it happen, and I can convert somebody, and, and man, we, we got we to gotta make this happen, and man, I can preach. I, I took homiletics and, and uh, speech, and oh, man, I, I know what to do, when to do, how to do it, and when I shouldn't do it, and everything I shouldn't be doing in between, and, and man, I can get in that pulpit, and I can, I can make somebody just get weep and wail and moan and roll on the floor, and I can do that because I've got, I've got that one semester and man, I, I took world religion and I, I'm ready, I'm ready. I, I know the world and I know the Mormons and man, I can debate the Mormons and the Muslims and man, I can, I can get out there and I want to be a missionary and, and something begins to burn. But the problem, the problem is, is we forgot to fast and pray because all we've got is energy and passion. But if we don't get a burden, a burden is what will keep you in the face of doing what you maybe don't even want to do because you know there's a purpose and an intent somebody you need to get a hold of God you need to get a burden for lost souls and that burden will keep you when you're supposed to stay and it'll take you when you're supposed to go but you can't do it without having a burden and weeping over the lost and knowing that God has created me for more than what I'm doing you see Nehemiah he stepped into this area where he didn't have the expertise. He didn't, he didn't know what he should do. But he said, somebody's got to do what somebody's got to do. And if that's me, I'll do it. But the problem with Bible college is that sometimes we get content going to classes and isolating ourselves from the world around us. Now, you don't have the same problem that I had. But you see, I would go weeks if not months and the world could have sustained a nuclear blast and World War III could have started and I would have had no idea that it had began. You see, we didn't have internet back in those days and we became cut off from the world around us. You know what reality was designed to do? Is to put you face to face with a lifestyle that you've never encountered probably before. That's what reality was designed to do. Now, some of us have come out of some things. I'm not questioning that. I don't know where Nehemiah's background. But I can promise you this, that Nehemiah was not prepared to hear what he heard. You see, he was devastated when he found out that the walls had been ripped down and the gates had been burned. This set the people up for devastation. That didn't mean any army could march against them, any 
band of marauders could come against them and they could take at will what they wanted, and they did. They would murder and butcher people as they walked just for the fun of it, and they would steal all that they had. The people had no morale. The people were devastated. There was hopelessness because, well, what good was it? The moment that anyone's decide to take whatever I have from me, they can do that, and I've got nothing to do to stop it. You see, what Nehemiah understood is that the people had no hope. No hope. Let me ask you this. What did you see when you walked down to the streets of Indianapolis? What happened when you knocked on that door that you could smell uncleanliness before the door even opened? What happened? What did you feel when you looked into someone's eyes that possibly had just shot up with drugs or it was coming down off of drugs? What did you see? Hopelessness. That's probably what you saw. You see, you came face to face with what Nehemiah was experiencing through the voice of his cousin. Now, we're not talking about an army that marched in, but we are talking about an army that marched in. You see, Satan's goal is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's his goal. He wants to do that in your life, to your ministry. He wants to do that in your family. He wants to do that to your church. He wants to do that to every living human being. Because if he can steal, he can steal their joy. He can steal their peace. He can steal their sane mind. He can steal their comfort. He can destroy their hope. He can destroy their passion. He can destroy their idea of what right and wrong is. And that means he can destroy. He can destroy neighborhoods and cities and nations because he can steal, he can kill, and he can destroy everything that we hold dear to ourselves. And Satan wants to do that. He wants to get into your mind, first of all. He wants you to think that the world is falling apart and you're cut off and can't do anything because you're stuck here at Indiana Bible College. But the reality of it is, is we have a reality and my prayers make a difference. That means that I can begin to call upon that name. And though I may not be able to get someplace physically, I have a God that can and he can step on the scene. That, I'm not worried about my church and I don't have to worry about my cousin and I don't have to worry about my dad because I can call upon the name of Jesus and he he can walk into a hospital room and he can walk into a broken car and he can reach down into a church that is facing isolation and confusion and being decimated by, by people that are doing the wrong thing and he can touch my family even though they, they're right there at that place where it may dissolve and break apart and there's no hope for them but God can step in and God can begin to take care of some issues that I may not see. Oh, Nehemiah began to fast and pray because he knew the very first thing that I've got to do is I've got to have a burden and I've got to call upon the name of our God Yahweh and I've got to believe that he's going to send an answer. You see Nehemiah was looking for a deliverer and he was looking for a savior of Israel and Nehemiah did not for one moment anticipate God sending him. You know why you're here? Some of you are here not even because you want to be here. You're here because you fought and you wrestled against the will and the idea of God's will. And you surrendered. And some of us still wrestle with that. Some of us still have ideas. Well, I, I've, I've got I've to get out of here. I've got one year. I'll give it one year. I'll give it two. I'll give it two. Well, I guess I'll give it three. Well, I, I guess four, so I might as well. But we're wrestling with the idea. Why? Why? Because we've got our plans and our goals and our dreams. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as it fits with God's dreams and his goals and his plan 
for our life. You see, there's a world out there that needs everything that you've got, and some of us have nothing to give. You see, we need to make sure that we're prepared and we're ready. But it's not just on education alone, though I believe that we need to get in the classroom. And if you're not showing up to classes, you probably need to get up and show up to classes. And listen, if you're not getting the material, if, there's, if, if you're just not getting it, then you need to talk to your instructors. If you're frustrated and feel like, man, I'm going to fail every class that I got, you know what? They don't want to fail you. There's no pleasure and no joy having you back in my class next year. I want to see new faces. I don't want to see you. So talk to them. Tell them, say, I, I, listen, I'm not getting it. I'm having, talk to them. No news is what? Well, hopefully. But sometimes when someone's not talking, you assume the worst, right? Get in there and talk to them. Find out, what do I need to do? How can I make this up? How can I fix this? How can I take care of this? So you have to write a paper. Write the paper. We need to get everything that we can get academically. We need to make sure that we're doing it, we're understanding it. The whole process of us going to classes is so that you get something that you don't know. That's it. And even if you do know it, hopefully it will give you a tool so that you can explore it deeper. But when we step out of this place, we're no longer in that little area of safety where we can glean, glean, glean. Now we've got to give, give, give. And it's kind of like that bucket. When you fill it up, if it's not completely full, it's not going to take a long time for that thing to be completely empty. You see, when you walk out of Indiana Bible College, you better make sure you've got everything that you need, not just academically, but you better make sure that you've got some prayers stored up, and you better make sure that you know how to get a hold of God, and you better make sure that you can walk the walk because there's people out there that are lost and hurting, and they need what you've got. And if I've got nothing to give them, then how in the world can I call myself a preacher? Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen we've got to get in the room of called fasting and prayer and commitment and consecration we need to get our ideas saturated with God ideas we need to get our spirit confirmed and and completely mingled with God's presence and know exactly what he wants us to do and what he needs us to say because there's people that we're coming in contact with that need a preacher they need somebody to stand on their front porch and preach the gospel the good news they need somebody to sit down with them at dinner and begin to tell them that Jesus loves you this I know and begin to expound on what the word of God says and how can I do that unless I've got a burden but you be careful with the burden because a burden will take you places that you may not want to go and it'll take you to people that you may not think that you like but a burden causes us to do things that we never thought were possible that's what a burden does a burden for the lost let me tell you if a preacher preaches about people that are lost and dying and going to hell and there's not a tear that's shed then something's wrong with my burden so when does ministry begin well it doesn't begin when you get out of IBC you messed up it began when you accepted the call that's when ministry began let me tell you something you're a minister right now you don't put your life on hold. You don't stop ministering. Do you think that you're just waiting to graduate to go? No, you're going right now. Where are you going? Well, you're going to the neighborhoods around you. You're going on MSA trips. 
you're going out with friends to minister at, at your home church or other home churches. Here it is. You're going to your job. You're going to the grocery store, the gas station, the country market, or neighborhood market. You see, wherever we go, we should have a burden that begins to pull us and lead us to people that are hurt. Don't pray the prayer, God, take me to someone that needs you because God will take you to someone that needs him. And you may be inconvenienced by the fact. But let me tell you, you're not waiting to go anywhere. Nehemiah, the devastation is right where you're at. You know what, Nehemiah, I don't believe Nehemiah had to go someplace to do a work for God because he just so happened to be in the presence of a pagan king and a nation that didn't serve God and a nation that was trying to overcome the enemies around them and a nation that was messed up theologically and a nation that worshiped pagan idolatry maybe Nehemiah should begin right where he was at but that's not where God called him no but let me say this wherever God calls you to go don't wait till you get there till you start ministry start it right now reach somebody you know what I believe Nehemiah had a presence of God upon his life and when he petitioned a king something began to touch him and he knew that God was with him So there it is. You're there on your job because God had favor on you to reach those people that you work with. I worked valet parking. That's where I met Doug. Doug Hughes was vice president of IB uh, student body. He was Charlie back in the day. And and, uh, Doug and I got hired at the same time. And Doug and I met Doug. And uh, Doug was a... Uh, bodybuilder. He was a professional bodybuilder. At, he was worked security. I guess that's fitting. You know, you wouldn't want him as a waiter, but he worked security at the Omni Hotel. And uh, Doug would get bored, and so he'd come out. And uh, Doug was he was he wasn't real tall, but he was as wide as he was tall. And he competed for Mr. Indiana State and won and uh, competed in other competitions and. When he first started telling us, I started laughing. You know, we were like, yeah, whatever, you know, because he was that type of guy. He's, he's, he'd brag about the shoes he had on or the tie he had or the car he didn't own but he was going to have. You know, that was the type of guy Doug was. And, and so Doug, he, uh, he'd come out and talk about all this stuff. And, and uh, then he brought pictures in and uh, just to verify because so, he knew we didn't believe him. And so he started showing us all these pictures. And I kept saying, Doug, that is not you. That is, that is not you. I'm looking at you, and that ain't you. He's like, no, 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 that is me. That is, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm not in competition for him right now. I said, brother, you better believe it you're not in competition for him. Because the guy that you are now ate that guy right there. <coughs> he said, no, 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 really, really. He said, I, I'm, I'm, he said, I had an injury, so I haven't, I haven't competed in a couple years. He said, but that's me. And I said, Doug, you, you look like this, this guy... He, you're, you're pale and pasty. He said, no, they oil me up. I'm, I'm oiled up. He said, it's fake tan spray. And I said, Doug, he said, I starve myself. He said, I, I, I go on these fasts. I just drink water and I don't eat anything for a couple weeks. And he said, I, I have to get down. He said, so my, my fat percentage is so low. And here was a guy that was just literally destroying his health because he wanted to compete. And uh, so this is Doug. And Doug strutted around. Doug saved my life, as a matter of fact, uh, I owe him that. We became close enough friends to where a guy was going to kill me at working at the Omni Hotel. This is, this is the truth. Not a word of this is a lie. And a guy showed up, and 
uh, locked his truck and went inside, and we couldn't get a hold of him. He didn't have a room, and so we called and called and called, and, and uh, finally we had to call the tow uh, company, and they came, and they were getting ready to tow his truck, and the owner of the truck came out. He was at the mall and just decided to leave us, and, uh, man, he got so angry at us and pulled a gun, and, uh, well, when he pulled a gun, we, we already called the cops. The guy was sitting there calling the cops, and he threatened. He said he was going to come back and take care of me, and... Uh, not in a good way, and so uh, he left, peeled out of there. When the cops showed up, the cops came, walked around, the cops left, and the guy showed back up. And, uh, man, I thought, I'm going to die. <laughs> this is it. I'm going to get shot. And, uh, and thank God Doug was there, and he pulls out this metal baton and slammed that old boy up against the truck and pinned him down until the cops got there, and they arrested him and took him off to jail. Doug saved my life. I, I, was, I loved Doug. He was... Uh, he was my best friend after that. And uh, so Doug, Doug came, and uh, he, he came up to us. He said, here, I want you guys to fill out this survey. He said, my, my girlfriend is a psychology student at IUPUI. And so we got the survey. We began to flip through it. He said, you guys are the most spiritual people I've ever met in my life. He said, you guys are really spiritual. He said, I want you to answer this questionnaire. And so we started looking at this questionnaire. And, man, I, I don't, it was, they wanted to know how, how many times a week we prayed, how many times we read our Bible. And I never did figure out what in the world this questionnaire was even for, but it was some class that she was doing as a psychologist. And she was writing these, and he said, you guys are the most spiritual people, so I want you guys to fill out these papers. And so we're writing down. Well, here's the funny thing about that. I don't even know if Doug turned these into his girlfriend. I think Doug just wanted to see what we were going to put down as the answers because he memorized every answer that Doug Hughes and I wrote down. And for the next two weeks, he asked us questions based upon that questionnaire that we filled out. My suspicions are is Doug just typed that up in his spare time at the IUPUI library and wanted to know exactly what we believe. And he began to ask us questions. And Doug, that's all we did. And he came in. And this is what Doug told me. This is what he told me. He said, I'm the most miserable person you've ever met in your life. That's what he told me. He said, I hate who I am. He said, I've got so many addictions. I've got strongholds I can't break free from. I said, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? I mean, you are this huge, larger than life, very charismatic. Everybody kind of wants to be around you. You're a bodybuilder, for pity's sakes. I mean, my word, nobody's going to mess with you. You saved my life. I'm indebted to you type of person. He said, but you don't understand. He said, I'm addicted. I'm addicted. He said, I'm on pain meds. I can't get off of them. He said, and half the time those don't work, so I try other things to try to take care of the issues I've got. He said, and then it messes with my mind. He said, and I'll... I'll lay awake at night and can't sleep, and I think about everything I've done. You see, this is back in the day where, where Doug wasn't in that place where things were socially acceptable as they are now. You see, and, and Doug had crossed the line sexually. He told me this. He said, I'm addicted to sex. He said, I'm so addicted, I, I, I cannot get enough, and that led Doug to other areas. And here he was. He was openly confessing that I'm struggling with bisexuality. And he said, I, I need an answer. Well, of course, I had the answer. Doug Hughes and I, we did not hold one punch back. 
Now, Doug never came to church. He never came to Calvary Tabernacle. But there were multiple times standing out in front of the Omni Severn Hotel in front of the little valet counter at 11.30 at night when we were already off work and we should have been headed back so we could get here in time for turkey, that Doug was standing there with tears flowing down his face. And he was saying, I just need an answer. I just need help. And we're saying, Doug, it's Jesus. Doug, you've got to repent. I don't think God can forgive me. You don't understand what I've done, what I've been a part of. You, you don't understand the things that are in my heart, the, the images and the ideas. that I. But Doug, you've got to put it under the blood. And Doug would not surrender his life. But let me tell you, the job that you're at is not just an accident or a coincidence. There is a mission field that God has called you to. Let me tell you, Nehemiah was placed in a position that he did not want to be in. He was placed at a place that he didn't like. And he was serving a king that he didn't even care for. But there was a reason why. And the reason was there was a nation that was lost and dying. And there was only one man that could march into that country and get access to places that nobody else had access to but the king of Persia. And that was Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was given letters so he could cross every river and every boundary. Let me tell you, you're in a position right now here at Indiana Bible. Bible college and you may not fully well know why you're here or what the purpose of your calling or your ministry but God has given you spiritual access to march across rivers in your life and to go through barriers that you've never been able to cross and to break addictions that you've never been able to break God has placed you in a position where he wants you now you've got to be sensitive and say God here am I send me Oh, let me tell you, the problem with Bible school is we're just waiting, 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 waiting. But God is not waiting. He's saying, go, go, go. Right now, there's a mission field, and it's right out there. I don't have to go to a foreign mission field. I don't have to take a position as a youth pastor or a pastor. Come on, there's a world that needs my message, and I've got a message of hope. I've got a message of deliverance. I've got a message that will set the captive free. It says, Jesus. Now hear me, hear me. I got on the internet this morning. I, I wanted to look and see what was happening, and uh, it's a mess. I got on Fox News and just scrolling through, man, they've got uh, the Caribbeans, and they're devastated, and tornadoes are spinning out of control. You've got professors that are saying, I, I, I'm so privileged to teach future dead policemen, and and the controversy rages on and on and, and you've got activists and you've got uh, civil rights problems over here and you've got people over there that are disgruntled with this movement. Let me tell you something. You know what we need? We need unity. We need unity. And that will only be brought by spirituality. We need people that are going to go counterculture that, that aren't getting wrapped up and caught up. And I'm not saying don't be savvy politically. But let me tell you, you need to keep your politics to yourself and you need to let Jesus be spoken from your mouth. Because when you begin to preach Jesus, it goes beyond politics. And you begin to create a dynamic and a culture that begins to transcend the messed up problems of this world. You see, that's peace that passes understanding that only God can give. And the man on the street doesn't care who you voted for and what your stance is. When you begin to preach Jesus and him crucified, it has the ability to change lives and ideas and minds. You know what? I want to introduce them to the one that can save them, that can help them, that can pick them out of despair and condemnation and put their feet on a foundation that they can say, yeah, I can do something now. I can be somebody, and it's all for the glory of God. So Nehemiah prayed, and he got a burden, and he went back, and he said, now give me papers of access. Now here's the key right here. He's looking at a pagan king that destroyed the nation 
but he's wanting to go back and rebuild. Now think of that. Think of it. Here's a king that probably had his hand, if not indirectly, directly involved in tearing down the walls and burning the gates of the city. Taking hundreds, if not thousands, after he slaughtered the men and carrying the rest off into captivity. And he goes in front of that king and says, I need access to go back to my home country so that I can rebuild what you've devastated. Let me just say this. I believe that God is going to use you to walk through doors that no one has ever walked through. And God is going to give you access to places that nobody ever thought that we would have access to. So turn it, did you ever think before the Iron Curtain fell that people would actually go into Russia? I remember that was a huge, that was a huge deal. Didn't seem possible. Oh. You see, Nehemiah was bold enough to ask, I want papers of access. I want, I want to be granted access. And not only do I want to be granted access, I want you to give me access to your forest and the keeper of your forest so that when I rebuild it, I'll have enough supplies. You know what God is asking you to do? He's asking you to walk into spiritual strongholds where the enemy has devastated people's lives and he's brought them down. Let, let me just say this. I, I was not too long ago. My wife didn't get a chance to go with me. She was in Pennsylvania or, or uh, someplace around the world traveling. She's a world traveler. And uh, she hadn't even had her passport. She's getting it back, though. Hopefully she can go to the Philippines with me. But if not, me and Wint Grantland are going to have a great time in the Philippines. I hope you get your passport back in time to go. But we'll take some pictures, and I'll buy you a souvenir <laughs> if you don't get a chance to. But uh, I'm just messing with her. We, we have our passport. She hasn't gotten hers back, and so she's stressed out about it. So just pray because she is going to be lonely, and we're going to be posting pictures of the Philippines here in a couple weeks. And uh, and we're going to have a good time, aren't we, IBC? Who's all going? We're going to have a great time. And uh, we hope Sister Guyton can go with us. But if not, that's not going to keep us from having a good time in the Holy Ghost. And uh, we're just going to make it happen. And I'm going to pay for that later. But, uh, and uh, so she was out. But I went into this town, and uh, it, was a, it was a small little town. It was a river town in Ohio. And some of you may even know where it's at, but I was there. And uh, it, was a, it was a coal mining town, and it's a steel mill town, and the steel mill shut down, and they fired 1,800 people, and, and you pulled into that town, and you could feel the heaviness. I didn't even talk to the pastor yet, had never been there before, and I pulled in, and there was a heaviness, and it was just oppressing, and it was pushing. You know what? There was a stronghold in that town of depression, and you walked into government housing projects on Saturday with me, and, and I was with the pastor. We walked in and knocked on people's doors and began to talk to them, and I met this lady, this, this elderly lady, a wonderful lady, and she's got grandkids, and the grandkids are playing, and she's the, the sole provider for the grandkids, and her husband died of cancer because he he worked in the steel mill and somehow contacted cancer through his environment that he worked in. And when he died, his insurance didn't cover all the medical bills. And she lost the house, the farm that they lived on, and all their land. And she lost her car. And now she's living in a government housing project. And she's a waitress down here at the Denny's. And she's got now has custody of her three grandchildren that she's trying to raise up and make sure they get to school on time. 
And here's an elderly grandmother trying to do all this, and she is desperate. And while she's talking to us, tears start flowing down her face as she recalls the days where she was blessed, and now she's got nothing. And the pastor's saying, well, you know what you need to do, come to church. And she said, I know, and I've been coming as often as I can, but my car is not running, and I don't know how to get it fixed. And he says, we'll be here to pick you up. And she was in church on Sunday, and she walked in, and she was dressed up. I mean, she had her hair fixed, and, and she had the nicest clothes, and she had her three grandkids and they were dirty the day before because they'd been playing outside and rolling in the dirt and man they had haircuts she cut their hair that night and uh, one of them she's so aggravated with because he's 11 years old and he didn't want his hair to cut and it was hanging down but she got a hold of him and that boy was slicked he he had a little hair on top but man it was slicked on the sides and she had that boy's haircut their faces were scrubbed up little girl had a dress on boys were all cleaned up they were fidgeting in their clothes didn't want to but she was there and that entire service from the moment that the music began she cried the entire service and at the end of that altar call she's standing in the front weeping openly and this wasn't her first first time in that altar but you see she came there because she needed something to change in her life she needed hope she needed to know that there's a God that will lift me up there's a God that will help provide for me there's a God you know what when Nehemiah he knew he understood I'm walking into a place that's been devastated by sin and oppression it's been devastated by evil people but I'm going into a place and I'm not ashamed to ask God to help provide to rebuild the walls of the city to rebuild the gates of the city. Ladies and gentlemen, there needs to be some passion in our heart that when we walk out of Indiana Bible College, that we're not ashamed to begin to ask God to help tear down the walls that the enemy has put up, to help break apart the chains that the enemy has wrapped around, and then we need to rebuild spiritual walls and doctrinal walls. We need to preach the gospel. We need to stand for truth. We need to give people hope and say God can do it. Tell you something. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You know what? We, we need to make sure that we know what we believe and we need to preach what we believe. Let me tell you this. Here's a, here's a clue. I'm going to tell you. You get what you preach. That's it. You walk into a church, if you don't preach it, you don't get it. So when you stand behind that pulpit, you preach what you need to happen. If you want miracles, you preach faith. If you want people's lives changed, you preach repentance and baptism and the infill of the Holy Ghost. If you want a church that is drawing closer to God, you preach holiness and righteousness and prayer and fasting. You preach what you get. The people absorb the word. They hear the word. But let me tell you something. You can't preach what you don't know and what you don't live. So if you don't believe in holiness, it's not going to be effective for you to preach holiness. If you don't believe in separation, it's not going to do very well if you're preaching separation. If you don't preach prayer, if you don't preach loving God, if you don't preach giving your life to ministry, then it's not going to work, ladies and gentlemen. You've got to get in there and preach what you know and what you've experienced and what you believe. So how do you get that? Well, you get it on Tuesday night prayers, and you get it in those moments where there's nobody else around, and you're consecrating your life to Him, and you're in the Word of God, and you're praying when nobody else sees. That's where you get 
get it. And when you get into a pulpit, people will feel and they'll respond to your spirit. That's what they're responding to. They're not so concerned about all the words. If you get them right or you mispronounce them or you fumble over yourself, you know what they're responding to? They're responding to the spirit of God that's moving through. That's what the anointing is all about. That's why God steps in. And when the preacher can't maybe convey his thought, the spirit conveys the thought. And God can change lives, not based upon your ability, but based upon what God does through you. So don't tell me you're not qualified. Nehemiah wasn't qualified. But God gave him access and he walked into places that he shouldn't have gone. You see, he was a slave and nothing more than a cupbearer. But God said, I'm going to use him to rebuild the walls of the city. Now, here it is. Nehemiah shows up in fear, but he was smart. He shows up in fear, but he was smart. And he began to assess the walls and the damage at night. You see, Nehemiah didn't begin to build immediately. He began to prepare, and he began to survey. You know, there comes a moment where while you're here at IBC, we want you to take a year, at least a semester, where you're just here to survey. That's why freshmen don't go on MSA trips, and that's why you're not going to stand behind this pulpit and preach. It's not that we don't believe in you. You see, we want you to survey. We want you to get connected. We want you to make sure that this is what I'm called to do. You see, the last thing that I want you to do is get up behind this pulpit and you've got issues in your life and you walk away from IBC and you fall right back into those same issues. You see, I hope that within one semester or one year that you're able to say, I know who I am and what I'm called to do. Does that mean that we've had students that have done that? Absolutely we have. We've had students that have stood behind this pulpit. They preached their testimony, but the problem is it wasn't their testimony because they never overcame. They were still living in it. And you know what happened? It messed up some people, did it not? Some of you know who I'm talking about. And it's not just one, but it's several. That have gotten up there and you're devastated after a year and they completely walk away from the truth and they walk away from Christianity and they walk away from God. And you're thinking, how in the world? I can't believe it of all the people. And I just want to say, you know what? You're not putting your faith in people. Let me tell you something. I don't care how spiritual the person on the pew next to you they seem to be. You're not living for God based upon them. And you're not allowing that to formulate your ideas of who God is. Now, I believe that iron sharpens iron, and I think that we need to challenge one another, not verbally necessarily, and not in a prideful sense, saying, well, I'm praying more than you. How much did you pray? Huh? Come on, tell me. Because I got three minutes in this morning. Did you get more than that? Oh, three and a half. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll get that this afternoon. Don't you worry. It's not a competition. It's, we're, not, we're not fighting against that. But what we are doing is we're sharpening one another. And so that means our, our actions and, and what we're saying behind closed doors in the dorm rooms. That's, it matters. It matters. Because you can either dull the knife that's trying to chop the tree or you can sharpen it and, and you can do work. Abraham Lincoln said this, give me an hour to chop down a tree and I'll spend, what, I think he said 45 minutes sharpening my axe. And you know what he was saying? Preparing, making sure that I know what I'm doing, making sure that the tools that I'm about to use. You know what? You're sharpening something right now or you're dulling something. You better make sure, you better make sure that your conversation and your action and what you're doing connects with the presence of God. And you need to be careful. Be careful what you get involved in when it comes to gossip because gossip will destroy the unity. Now, not all unity is good. I talked about that in Old Testament survey uh, yesterday and the other day. Not all unity is good because in the Tower of Babel, what they tried to do, they tried to unify to circumvent the judgment of God. 
but unity with God's purpose and God's intent, blessed by God to accomplish His purpose and His will is always a good thing. And why would I want to be a part of tearing down unity? Nehemiah walked into this place and he began to try to unify the people together. And there was opposition against him. And there was a darkness against him. But it didn't dissuade. It didn't turn him away. Nehemiah said, we're prepared to face the opposition. And he said, we're going to rebuild the walls of this city. And I don't care who comes against us. And as a matter of fact, he said, you're going to build with your tool in one hand and a sword in the other. You know what he was saying? We're going to be prepared. We're going to build this wall back up. We're going to stand for truth. And we're going to stand for righteousness. But you better know this. When you start preaching the will of God and you start preaching the word of God, there will be an opposition that comes against you. And you better make sure that you've got your back covered and you're not intimidated when the enemy blows his horn and yells at you and threatens you. You better say, I stand upon this word. The gates of hell shall not prevail. I'm going to stand upon truth because God will defend you because it's more than just you. It's more than just Jerusalem. It's generation after generation after generation. You see, I'm closing right now. You see, here's what happened. When Nehemiah, when Nehemiah began construction on the wall, every able-bodied man began to work. Every able-bodied man. They were prepared. They're building and they're watching. Access to a sword because they're working with their tools. They knew. Sanballat's coming. He's already threatened. He's been mocking us. He's been making fun of us. He's been telling us we can't do it. It's impossible. But if he comes against us, we're going to be ready to fight. You see, here's what happens with reality week. We're on a spiritual high. We've seen miracles. We've seen signs and wonders. We've had people baptized. We're going to have people filled with the Holy Ghost. We're going to see a long-lasting effect of this. But here's what's happening. The enemy is going to start speaking to you. And he's going to start tempting you. And he's going to start yelling at you. And he's going to start mocking you. And he's going to start intimidating. And it's going to come from weird places that maybe you didn't even expect. Maybe it's going to come from your family or maybe at your job. Or maybe the very thing that you're trying to do, teach the Bible study and win the loss. It's going to come through those avenues. But you better be ready because anytime you begin to build something, the enemy will begin to tear it down. I promise you. So you just know this right now that I don't care how difficult it gets me being here at Indiana Bible College. I'm not stopped. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to build this wall. I'm going to plant my feet upon this foundation. I'm going to make sure because it's not just me. No, no, it's not just me. Some of you have come to IBC and your family's watching you and they're saying, oh, I hope they succeed. They may not say it with their mouth, but they're saying, I hope they succeed. I hope they do. I hope God uses them. Then there's kids in your youth group that love you and admire you and they're watching you to see how you turn out and everything that you post on Facebook and Instagram and everything that you're doing with your ministry, they're saying, man, I want to be just like them and then there's friends on the fringe and there's friends in your youth group that are looking at you and they're watching you and every time that you come back they'll notice a change and some of them are walking away from God faster than you can call them but guess what you're making an impact upon their life so you keep building the wall and even if the enemy comes against you and then some of you are facing sickness and some of you are facing financial problems and the enemy's trying to say it's no hope you might as well give up it's not going to hold you're going to build a wall and somebody's going to run past it and it's going to shake and fall down but you've got to start believing that God is able come on he didn't bring me to this place for me to fail I'm going to build the wall we're going to put the gates up on the city and when Satan comes against us we're going to fight the enemy and we will overcome
overcome. Chapter 4 and verse 13. You know what he did? Able-bodied men working. I'm closing. Musicians. Able-bodied men are working on the wall. They're ready for war. But here's what happened. As that man was working on the wall, Nehemiah said, come on, mom. Come on, son. Come on, daughter. As dad's working on this wall, you know what his family did? Those young boys got their bow and arrows. Mom was ready when the enemy came. Their families, their families, their families, there they were. You see, it wasn't just a daddy thing. It wasn't just a you. It wasn't just your calling. It's not just what I'm going to do with my ministry. Chris, there's, there's people that are looking towards you, your family members. If we can walk around, listen, family members, people that don't even know, they don't even understand, people that are wrestling with their faith and their belief. You know, you're building the wall. You're, you're here at Indiana Bible College. The problem with Bible schools, we think that we got to get out to make the impact. But no, you being here is making an impact. There's people in your youth group, and some of you, you're the only one in your youth group that came to Bible school. Your success or failure will speak volumes to their life. Some of you came from homes. Mom and dad don't even live for God. It was a struggle for you to walk through the doors of Indiana Bible School. See, you're building the wall. It's not just for you. It's for your family behind you. Let me tell you something. If you're here and your family's not standing with you to fight with you, maybe you feel like they're standing to fight against you. But let me tell you who your family is. Your family is right here in this place. You see, not only are we going to build the wall together, but let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to unify together. And when the enemy comes against us, when the enemy attacks, that's why we pray. And if you have a prayer request, we'll pray every time in chapel for that need. And we'll take as much time. You know why? Because we're a family. And we're building this wall together. And we're building a ministry together. And we're not going to let the enemy come against us. We're not going to let him wipe it out and tear it down. We're not going to let him burn the gates. We're not letting him going to carry off into captivity. I can't afford to let my mama die and be carried off into captivity. I can't afford to let my, my son die and be carried off into captivity. can't afford to let my cousin or my aunt and uncle. We're going to stand together and know that God is able. Here's what I want us to do. I, I'm, I'm done. I know I preached too long. I'm done. Here it is. Here it is. I want every Nehemiah. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what you do. I don't care if you have a family, you don't have a family for the only one, first generation, third generation, 12th generation Pentecost. I want every Nehemiah, you got to get in your mind. You got to make up, you got to make it up in your mind to say, I'm going to build the wall. Yes. And let me say this before you rush up here, I don't want you rushing blindly. I want every eye to close in this place. I don't want one person to step out right now. Every eye closed. 
Here's what I want us to do. If you're responsible for trying to disunify, if you're responsible for criticizing, if you're responsible trying to mess things up, what God's trying to put together, some of us with a critical spirit or a critical attitude, you know what? You're not a Nehemiah. You're an enemy that's coming against the wall. You need to get that spirit out because it's not of God. And you need to get a spirit of unity. You need to get a spirit of consecration. You need to get a burden on your life. You know what the problem is? The reason we talk against everything and about everything and try to tear down everything thing is because we haven't had a burden get a hold of us. We need to pray and fast. Some of us need to get in that altar. Some of us need to get a right spirit and a clean heart. And we need to have God give us a burden for souls. A burden for the person that's standing next to me. The burden for that person that may not be living right or doing everything they should be. And help me to help them, God, I pray. So here's what I want us to do. I want every Nehemiah as close as you can. I want every Nehemiah to step out of your pew right now. Come on, you're here together. We're in this together. We're in this together. Now let me tell you something. We, we don't need guys going around laying hands on girls. We don't need girls laying hands on guys. we got plenty. This is what I want us to do. I want us to begin to pray one for another. And if you feel like you need to pray for yourself, you spend some time praying for yourself. But I want us to minister one to another. Some of you know the situation, the home life. There's a young lady right here. God knows. Come on, I want you to lay your hand on them and begin to pray. I want you to pray that God would help them, anoint them, bless them. Come on, I want you to pray that God would raise them up, that they would rebuild the wall. Their family would be touched by them. Come on, I'll stand for it. I'll believe it. We're in this together. Come on, I'm not going to let you fall. I'm not going to be the one responsible for your failure. I want to get my heart right, my life right. I want to pray that God will touch you, your mind, your spirit. Come on, we need a spirit of unity. We need God to do a work right now in the name of Jesus. Have your way, God. Come on, that's it, in the name of Jesus. Change.